open God's holy word to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 29, be reading verses 1 through 32. Jeremiah 29, 1 through 32. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from, the pro- sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priest, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisaw, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to Yahweh on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares Yahweh. For thus says Yahweh, when seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares Yahweh, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares Yahweh. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Because you have said, Yahweh has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. Thus says Yahweh concerning the king who sits on the throne of David. And concerning all the people who dwell in the city, your kinsmen, who did not go out with you into exile. Thus says Yahweh of hosts. Behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them a whore to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them, because they did not pay attention to my words, declares Yahweh." that I have persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets, but you would not listen, declares Yahweh. Hear the word of Yahweh, all you exiles, whom I sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Koliah, and Zedekiah, the son of Maaseah, 
who are prophesying a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall strike them down before your eyes. Because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah in Babylon. Yahweh make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire, because they have done an outrageous thing in Israel. They have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives, and they have spoken in my name lying words that I did not command them. I am the one who knows, and I am witness, declares Yahweh. To Shimei, the son of Nehalem, you shall say, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, You sent letters in your name to all the people who are in Jerusalem, and to Zephaniah, the son of Maaseiah, the priest, and to all the priests, saying, Yahweh made you priest instead of Jehoiada the priest to have charge in the house of Yahweh over every madman who prophesies to put him in the stocks and neck irons. Now why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth who is prophesying to you? For he sent to us in Babylon saying your exile will be long, build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. Zephaniah the priest read this letter in the hearing of Jeremiah the prophet. Then the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah, Send to all the exiles, saying, Thus says Yahweh concerning Shemaiah of Nehalem, Because Shemaiah had prophesied to you when I did not send him, and has made you trust in a lie, therefore thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will punish Shemaiah of Nehalem and his descendants. He shall not have anyone living among this people, and he shall not see the good that I will do to my people, declares Yahweh, for he has spoken rebellion against Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, As we consider, in light of these recent texts in Jeremiah, the abundance of false teaching that there was not only in Jeremiah's time, but there is in ours as well. Father, may we not be so on guard. May we not be so vigilant in contending against error that we fail to realize and appreciate and enjoy and rejoice in your promises. Father, may we never fight simply for your promises, but may we fight with your promises. Speak, Lord. Give us ears to hear, hearts to believe, eyes of faith. May we receive with gratitude these truths for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. What is that thing that you like or you want to like and you can't bring yourself to admit it? or enjoy the thing 
because of who or what is associated with it. I'm not talking about a guilty pleasure. A guilty pleasure is where you can't enjoy the thing because of the, or you won't admit it, because of the thing itself. In this instance, the, instance, the, the shame isn't because of the thing, but because of who or what the thing is associated with. So perhaps there's that product. And you really think, that might be the best product there is. And you, you want to buy it, but you just can't bring yourself because that's the thing that all the liberals have. Can't have that. So, in a similar vein of thought, let's say you're in life group and folks are mentioning passages that are dear to them. No one wants to say Psalm 23 because everybody knows that psalm, right? And you want to look unique and individual. That's a sin and that's not the one I'm getting at. Now, the same thing can happen with Jeremiah 29.11, I'm going to guess, if you're in prosperity gospel circles. No one wants to mention that one because everybody knows that one. But we're not in that circle. And yet Jeremiah 29.11 goes unmentioned because it's associated with that crowd, you see. In the first instance, if you mention Psalm 23... People might think to themselves, he said that because that's the only scripture he knows. If you say Jeremiah 29, 11, they might think, he said that because he's a heretic. Now, prosperity gospel preachers are guilty of ignoring huge chunks of the Bible. And though less dangerous... We should not ignore the few, the precious few that they focus on as though they were guilty by association. All Scripture is profitable and God-breathed, even the passages that they like. How clever our enemy, that if he cannot get us to deny the truth for love of a lie, he may be able to do so for fear of a lie. We shouldn't just spot the lies. We should spot them because we're zealous for the truth. And Jeremiah 29, 11 is God's truth. I'm ashamed that I've so often ignored it for these very reasons. But I'm resolved to do so no longer. This, this passage is precious to me. It, it came as a welcome reprieve in, in all these chapters as we've seen Jeremiah contending against the false prophets to remind me, to remind us of the precious truths of God as the reasons why we fight. We must contend not simply because the lies are so destructive, but because God's promises are so precious. Now, in this chapter, we have a letter, or rather a collection of letters. And before we get to the body of the main letter, though, there's quite a bit of time, three verses, the first three verses, that unpack the mechanics of the letter. This letter is from Jeremiah. It's from Jerusalem. Jeremiah wrote it. He sent it from Jerusalem. And this letter comes then not just from home. It, it's not just a word from home. 
It's the word coming to them from home. It's not just news from home. It's prophecy from home. Now, generally, I would expect these exiles welcomed any correspondence that might come from home. Think about how these exiles would now regard Jerusalem. You remember, these are the very exiles who once thought that being taken captive by Babylon an impossibility because they had been told, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. Chapter 7, verse 4. Because God had made His name to dwell amongst them. In that house, they thought they were immune from such Well, now, having been taken into captivity, perhaps they recalled Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. Solomon prayed, If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, yet if they turn... And repent and plead with you in the land of their captors. Saying, we have sinned and have have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive. And pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers. The city that you have chosen. And the house that I have built for your name. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you. And grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your heritage which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among, from among the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord Yahweh. First Kings chapter 8. They would look to Jerusalem not just as we might look to Washington, D.C., say the United States was under uh, a foreign nation's power and we were taken away. It would not just be their political center, their their center of government. It was their religious center. It was where they enjoyed all the commanded feasts. To be separated from Jerusalem, in their mind, would be the same as to be separated from God, essentially. To be separated from worship, and perhaps we can appreciate a bit more of the longing they had for Jerusalem at this point in our lives than we could at any other time. They couldn't gather with the people of God and worship with them. You get something of the longing they felt in Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung our lyres, for there our captives required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing Yahweh's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. 
Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Yahweh, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem. How they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall be he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This letter comes to exiles. Exiles who no doubt greatly long to return to their home. They were taken by Nebuchadnezzar from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, they were not all in the city proper. If you read Ezekiel, you see it's clear that they're not all in the city proper, but they are, as it were, in the heart of Babylon now. They've been relocated to Babylon in its most Babylonian expression. They're, they're near the city. And specifically, this is that large group of exiles mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 24. The king, his mother, were told there that they carried away all the officials, the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, all the craftsmen, the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of, of the land. These are then the good figs of Jeremiah chapter 24, of which Yahweh said, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am Yahweh, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart." Finally, regarding the mechanics of this letter, we're even told who the mailman was. Mailmen. Elisaw and Gemariah bring this letter while they're on official business sent by King Zedekiah to Babylon. We're not told what this business was. And I would imagine that they likely carried a load of correspondence from Jerusalem to Babylon, but... Jeremiah is not just anyone, and this is a letter to everyone, and so you are wondering, perhaps, how did Jeremiah get this letter in? Well, we're, we're not told exactly, but one could speculate that it's very likely that this Elisaw, who's a son of Shaphan, is a son of the same Shaphan that we see the progeny of help Jeremiah so often throughout this book. Most recently, chapter 26, verse 24 one Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, is the one who kept, keeps Jeremiah from being handed into the hands of the people. So if this is the case, this is the very same Shaphan who was the secretary who read the book of the law to King Josiah. Add to that, it's very likely that this Gemariah is the son of the Hilkiah who was the priest who gave the book of the law to Shaphan. To read to the king. So in that case. How might. Have Jeremiah been able to get this letter. Into their hands. To get to the exiles. Well one very likely answer. Is that the word of God made a way for the word of God. 
It worked in Shaphan in such a way that it worked on his children. Who then, despite what might happen to them, should they carry a letter from Jeremiah, they did so anyway. Well, we come to the body of this letter and it makes a transition. It transitioned us from, it continues the theme of Jeremiah rebuking the false prophets, but it picks up the theme that we'll see develop in the coming chapters of holding out true promises. So in chapters 26 through 29, Jeremiah has been contending against the false prophets, and then we're going to come into chapters 30 through 33, which are known as the book of consolation, which hold not just promises, but some of the sweetest and most beautiful promises in all the Old Testament. In the midst of this book, Jeremiah, believe it or not, as we've, we've experienced so far. So note then with this, the polemical, the pugilistic setting that these promises are contained in. These are not so much promises that Jeremiah fights for. These are promises Jeremiah fights with. He fights against the false prophet's lies with these true promises. But we don't quite hear the edge with which the promises themselves would come. So imagine a prophet comes to you and he wants to tell you the good news that God has a wonderful plan for you in your child's cancer. And then you'll get something of the edge with which these promises that Jeremiah is speaking of, come. He tells them, buckle up and get comfortable because you're going to be here a while. This is going to be a long ride. The exiles would be afforded a great deal of liberty in Babylon, and Jeremiah is telling them, use it to settle in. Build houses, verses 4 through 7. Live in them. Plant gardens. Eat their produce. This is not a camping trip. So ditch your tent. Build a house. This is not vacation. So stop eating out and plant a garden. They're to take wives for themselves, for their sons, give their daughters in marriage, multiply there. One thing this recalls is God's faithfulness to His people while they were in Egypt. And how while they didn't fully partake of all of God's covenant promises at that point, He did multiply and make of them a great people to bring them into His land. And now He's telling them, while you're there, be fruitful. As I'm going to bring you back, but not immediately. And also, I think it really telling that the generations unfolded here. You're to take a wife and have sons and daughters, and they're to take spouses and have children. You have three generations. And how, how, how were this 70 years, how was it captured in chapter 27 and verse 7? How was that time span captured? That Nebuchadnezzar would rule his son and his grandson, and then he would make an end of them. Now, They're to seek the welfare of Babylon because in its welfare, verse 7 says, they will find their own. It's as if a bit of Jerusalem has come to Babylon and Babylon is the better for it. And because Babylon's better for it, it's Babylon is better for them. 
Now, some look at a passage like this, and especially in our day, they'll speak of redeeming the culture. We cannot purchase a culture. We cannot purchase heaven for a culture. But perhaps we can give them a bit of a glimpse, a sight of the way things are meant to be, the way things will be. And in doing so, we get a bit of a foretaste of it ourselves. Just because this world is going to hell doesn't mean we need to let it be as much of a hell as it can be. Be salt, be light, retard the rot, illumine the darkness. See, the reason they're to do this is not because of what lies in the future for Babylon. Seek the welfare of the city, not because the city is going to become a Jerusalem. It's not what will become of Babylon, but what will become of Jerusalem. That they're to live in Babylon in this way. The world is not to be made a heaven. But heaven will one day come to this earth and make all things new. So live like citizens of this eternal heavenly kingdom in this passing age, both for your own good and theirs. The reason they're to do all of this is because of God's promise as it's unfolded in verses 8 through 15. Their obedience is to be based on, rooted in, motivated by God's promises. Verse 8 of chapter 29. For thus says Yahweh. So do all of this because, and he begins to unfold this promise. The principle here is what John Piper calls living by faith in future grace. The obedience which we are to render unto God is the obedience of faith, and that faith is in grace that's held out for us in the future. Faith looks back to the past, at the person and the work of Christ, but it looks back at those as something that made sure and certain grace that lies immediately and far out forevermore in front of us. There's grace, grace, grace that's promised out there. And so faith looks at those things and rests in the hope of grace that lies ahead. At first, this promise though seems wholly negative. They're to live this way in Babylon, because the message of the prophets among them, verse 8, is a lie. So, we've, we've got our, they've got their own prophets in Babylon. These prophets are among them. And they're preaching some message that's contrary to Jeremiah's. Rather than a message that seems to say, settle in, it's a message that would stir up. I don't think it's any great mystery what message they might be preaching that's contrary to Jeremiah's. It would be the same, way, same one that Hananiah was preaching back in Jerusalem. Within two years I will bring back to this place all the vessels of Yahweh's house, which Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah the son of Jehoiakim king of Judah and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares Yahweh. I will break the yoke of 
the king of Babylon, chapter 28, 3 through 4. Now, if that message found a welcome audience among those who remained in Jerusalem, imagine how the exiles might appreciate such a message. And instead of two years of restoration, Jeremiah comes preaching 70 years of captivity. Why are they told to build, plant, marry, seek the welfare? Because they will be there 70 years. And then, after 70 years, God will visit them, fulfill His promises, bring them back, verse 10. They've not been abandoned in Babylon. God has plans for them, verse 10. Plans for a future and a hope. But immediately, His plans is for them to build, live, plant, eat. Marry, give their daughters and children in marriage. Multiply and seek the welfare of the city. What are these plans, though, for their future? What do those concern? By the way, most people use this verse, you would think that God's plans are not so very different from our own. What are these plans? Well, whatever you want to put a a nice Christian gloss on. For your future. That's what his plans are. We know what prosperity gospel preachers say these plans involve, but most evangelicals don't fare any better for having some vague, nebulous idea. Don't know what God's plans are for my life, but I know he has plans for a hope and a future. It's just kind of sentimentalistic mush. There's nothing to it. But these plans spoken of here are not abstract at all, they're very concrete. Now, because this verse has been abused so much, many evangelicals want to distance themselves from it. But I don't believe the distance is justified. I think these plans very much do have to do with us. The problem that I think prosperity gospel preachers make with this verse is not one of misappropriation, as though it had nothing to do with the church. The problem is that they preached this verse in the exact same way that the false prophets of Jeremiah spoke of the same plans in many ways. That there's something that's to happen right now. See, imagine some false prophet taking Jeremiah's words and saying, See, Jeremiah says God has a plan for us. We'll be returned to Jerusalem soon. So what are those, these plans? Do they really have anything to do with us, with the church? Well, first, this promise will happen, we're told, then. And the then takes you back to verse 10, whenever the 70 years are completed and God visits them. They call on Him. They come and pray to Him and He hears them. As He heard the cries of His people in Egypt, brought them into the land, so He will hear their cries and bring them back. They will seek Him, and they'll find Him when they seek Him with their whole heart. Remember Solomon's prayer. This is a peculiar promise. As it has this condition, they'll seek Him and find Him when they seek Him with their whole heart. It's a condition that the promise promises. It promises a new heart with which they'll seek Him. 
with their whole heart and thus find him. God will restore also all their fortunes, bring them back from the nations where he drove them, bring them back to Jerusalem, verse 14. Now, all that does sound very Israelitish and ancient, doesn't it? It happened to them and it happened back then. But the question is, did it happen fully? Let's look at the book of Consolation and how it develops these very same themes, how it speaks of them. And then let's look at the New Testament and how it picks up that same language. So, at the heart of the book of Consolation is a promise concerning a new heart. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Implication being, this is a covenant when I'm bringing them out of Babylon. My covenant that they broke, this one they will not, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares Yahweh, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know Yahweh, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now, if you're missing all the connections, listen to the way Jeremiah continues to unfold these promises. In the next chapter, chapter 32, 36 through 41. Now therefore, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, concerning this city, of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Jerusalem. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. Do these verses have anything to do with us? Do these plans involve us at all? The author of Hebrews appears to be under that impression. The longest quotation of any Old Testament passage is the quotation of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which we just read in Hebrews chapter 8, 8 through 12, where he tells us that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. That he is the high priest who has sat down, having accomplished his work, on the basis of which that blood as it's been applied to us has cleansed us from all of our sin. It's through the rent temple of His flesh that we come before the throne of God's grace. If God has visited you, you who were distant and brought you near by the high priest to the Holy throne of God, 
so that you sought and you found. You cried out and you heard because he removed a hard heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. Then you know something of these plans which God is speaking of here. I found Kim Riddlebarger's analogy helpful in understanding how prophecy works in this way. It says, as I stand in the greater Los Angeles basin and look toward the mountains to the northeast, I see a single mountainous ridge on the horizon. Yet if I were to drive directly toward the mountains, I would soon realize that what appeared to be a single ridge was actually a series of hills, valleys, mountains separated by many miles. So it is with some Old Testament prophecies. The exiles who were restored only came to the hills, as it were. They only saw in those hills a shadow of the mountain that is in Christ. Now in Christ, we've come to the mountain itself, but we're at the base. We have not fully fully entered into all that is promised to us yet. And so we look back to these very same promises because they are shadows cast by that mountain. You want to get an idea of the peak? Look at the shadows that were cast, which they looked to. Listen to how Peter uses so much of the same imagery. Speaking of the church, being regarded as exiles, of our being redeemed, of our inheritance. And then what's really striking to me is listen to the application that he makes and compare it to the application that Peter has made of these same promises. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and in the sanctification of the Spirit. Elect exiles foreknowledge. Does this sound like there was a plan? For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us uh, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. A group of exiles that God has set His love on and purposed to bring them to a promised inheritance. You see? So if we are exiles with such a hope lying in front of us, how then should we live? You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which is imagery borrowed from Isaiah, which relates to the same plans. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, 
they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. In other words, Peter says, buckle up. You're going to be here a while. Heaven is your destination, but there is a bumpy ride. So build houses and live in them. Plant gardens. Eat of them with gratitude and joy. Marry. Give children away in marriage. Multiply. Be fruitful. And seek the welfare of your city. Or in its welfare, you'll find your own. Yes, but how was this letter received? Well, either Jeremiah prophetically anticipates how it would be received, or we have him responding to their response. In verses 15 through 23, I take it that Jeremiah tells them their response before they have opportunity to respond. He responds to their response before they respond. I think God is letting them, as we'll see a theme that I believe develops in this, this latter half of the chapter, God knows. God has read their mail before they even write it. They reply, Yahweh has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. They reject Jeremiah's word for that of their prophets. Again, what were these prophets saying? I think it clear, it was a message of imminent restoration. Because they've said this, verse 17, we see that though that sword, famine, and pestilence will be sent by Yahweh against these people, against those who remained in Jerusalem. He'll make them like vile figs that cannot be eaten, verse 17. He'll make them a horror, a terror, a curse, a reproach among all the nations where He drives them, verse 18. Why? Because they didn't pay attention to His words. So immediately, what they can be expect, Yahweh tells them, is not for exiles to return, but for those who remain to be destroyed. And then two of these prophets in particular, Ahab and Zedekiah, are called out. They will be given into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, and their fate will become a byword, a curse by the exile. So you're saying, we have our own prophets, and Jeremiah is saying, very soon. Those prophets will be how you curse another person. May God make you like Ahab and Zedekiah that Nebuchadnezzar roasted. Unlike the three Hebrew children which we read of in Daniel, Ahab and Zedekiah got cooked. Their heresy is undergirded, verse 23, by immorality. And it seems very apparent that probably this wasn't well known to the exiles, but now God has made it known because He knows it, verse 23. 
Now, this kind of rebuke of false prophets is nothing new to us. That's why we only like to touch on it. We've seen this in the past chapters. What's unique here is that this is the setting for these promises again. It's in light of this contending against false prophets that the promises are held out in Jeremiah. And so I urge you again, don't just fight for God's precious promises. Fight with them. God's promises are not some delicate piece of china that you need to protect from heresy. They are a sword with which you fight heresy. If these exiles, and I believe they did come to see, but only if they could at this point, if they could only see the preciousness, the, the bigness, the glory of the promises of Jeremiah's holding them out, in comparison to the smallness, the short-lived promises that are being held out by the false prophets, those lies would have no appeal to them. Saints, so revel in the glorious, eternal, full promises held out in God's Word that lies, contemporary lies that match so much of what we've seen, these false prophets, that these lies as they're held out attract you in no way. They're repulsive to you. And then you're in the position to really contend the truth. Because it's the, it's the, it's the evangelist who says, taste and see that the Lord is good with a mouthful of bread and a smile on his face that says so most convincingly. Speak of how vastly superior God's promises are you as one who relishes them. And you'll be the convincing apologist. The, the prosperity preachers cannot outpromise your God. They offer flimsy idols instead of the rock of salvation. They try to offer you a heaven on an earth that's fading away rather than an earth made eternally heaven. God promises a new creation and it appears first in His people as redeemed souls and as His church gathered and one day with the cosmos made new, but not yet. So next, Jeremiah addresses a separate letter to Shimei, verse 24 through 32, also a false prophet. And this is a letter about letters that I believe turns into another letter. So he writes a letter to Shimei, and he's writing him about letters that Shimei wrote. Indeed, the only part of Jeremiah's letter to Shimei is a carbon copy, as it were, of Shimei's letter. And then it turns into this letter to the exiles concerning Shimei. And what I think is being spoken of here is that Jeremiah wrote an open letter. He's writing a letter to Shimei in which he also addresses all the exiles concerning Shimei, exposing him. And with this carbon copy, I think it's continuing the theme of God saying concerning the false prophets, he knows. Shimei, let's deal with his letter first, 25 through 29. He's written to those in Jerusalem, specifically to Zephaniah, the son of Maaseah, the priest. 
Zephaniah, we're told, had charge over the house of Yahweh, so he has authority to act as the temple police. He has the same office that we saw earlier with Pasher, the one who put Jeremiah in the stocks for preaching in the temple. And so, what Shimei asks, well, first he just tattles on Jeremiah. Did you hear what he said to us? And so then he asks, why haven't you done anything about him? Why hasn't he done anything? Well, perhaps because Zephaniah recalls what happened to Pasher. Pasher put Jeremiah in the stocks. And Jeremiah responded saying, the king of Babylon will take you captive and you'll die. And it happened. So now Zephaniah is maybe a bit hesitant to follow in those footsteps. So poetically, the tattler gets tattled on Zephaniah rather than putting Jeremiah in the stocks, dealing with the mad prophet. He tells Jeremiah. He reads the letter. That seems Zephaniah is not wanting to get any more involved in, than, than this much. We don't ever seem really do anything positive for Jeremiah, but he, he reads the letter. So again, this emphasizes... Shephaniah's plan is to put communication in the hands of Zephaniah that deals with Jeremiah. And rather than this dealing with Jeremiah, now Jeremiah knows and he responds, which is all, I think, again, telling Shimei, Yahweh knows. And because Shimei has played the prophet, causing the people to trust in the lie, he will be punished, verses 31 through 32. All the redemption, all the precious promises that are being held out in this chapter... Neither he nor his children will participate in. They won't even participate in the shadows being cast by that mountain of redemption, much less the new covenant and its fullness anticipated here. They are cut off from the people of God. So Jeremiah fights against this rejection of God's promise by rejecting the prophet's part in that promise. All this sets you up. This is, the, this is the setup for the book of consolation that's to come. All these promises that are about to be gloried in and held forth, they have this setting. Before we can turn, Jeremiah's outline this way, before you can turn to the hope that's held out in the book of consolation, you must turn from the false hopes held out by the false prophets. If you're to find any consolation in the truth of God, you must turn first from the lies of this world. If you turn towards Christ in faith, you must in doing so, turn away in repentance from sin. And one sin in particular would be the idolatrous false hopes held out by this world. If you're wanting to tack Jesus on to your plans... To supersize them, spiritualize them, supercharge them, or ensure them, all that you hope to build will fail. Because you're seeking to build an earthly Babylon, not not participate in the heavenly Jerusalem. Your plans for the future will soon be past. They will not endure. But for those whose hearts have been made new, whose chief love with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul, whose love is God Himself. For those who are looking for that city, whose designer and builder is God. For them, know indeed that God 
has a plan for you. Plans for a future and a hope, but not fully yet. So while you're here, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, and eat of their produce with gratitude. Marry, multiply, be fruitful. Raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And seek the welfare of the city. For in its welfare you will find your own. Paul tells us, many will stumble over the word of Christ. They will disobey the word as they were destined to. But we, we are a chosen people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for his own possessions to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his light. He has gathered us and one day he will gather us home. And so go forth and don't just fight for the truth. Fight with the truth. Fight with this truth. Let's pray. Father, may your promises not just be some ethereal idea that float in our head. May we work out our theology with our hands. In real ways that means dirt under our fingernails, aches in our back, love in our heart, tears in our eyes, love for our neighbor, zeal for your glory, hopes for our city. Father, Forgive us our unbelief. And as we, by your grace, come to trust your promises more, may we not just see the the lies, the blatant heresy that's obvious, but all the, the stealthy lies that would distract us from living unto your praise and your glory in all things. Whenever we fight with your promises, Father, it's the biggest war we face every day is to fight against the unbelief and the sin within. And so make us pure and holy unto you by your word and your truth for the glory of your name in this place. May we be faithful until you call us home. Looking forward to that day when you will make all things new. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen.